Good evening, everybody. My name is Catherine Gallagher. I'm the Dunleary Rathdown County Librarian, and it is my extraordinary privilege to welcome you all here to the lexicon this evening. So, dear Eve, Falteroth to Gokdina. And I suppose this is a very important event, and this is one of the events that are helping us to kind of get back into, as we say, a return to normality here in the lexicon. So we're delighted this evening we have this event on the fourth floor and on the six o'clock on the third floor we have the launch of our new gallery exhibition. So this kind of idea of a lot happening in this wonderful building is just fantastic to see again a kind of a rebirth. So you're all very welcome as I said to the launch of five classic literature titles here in the lexicon from Ireland House. DLR Library's commitment to Irish authors is strong and it's evidenced by the Irish author collection, particularly up on level five. If people haven't had an opportunity to see it, it's an expansive collection, a research and lending collection that really speaks to Irish authors in languages, in multiple languages, and also is available to really showcase that role of the library as that cultural memory piece. It's a collection that has been bolstered by acquisitions, by donations, and by a general interest and a willingness to kind of try and drive the collection forward. So this collection is extraordinarily important for students, for researchers, and also for people looking perhaps for novels from an earlier era. We recently acquired 500 copies of books from Alan Hayes of Ireland House, filling gaps by women writers in our Irish author collection. And thank you very much for that. And I suppose it's important, perhaps interesting to note at this stage, the International Federation of Library Associations is coming to Dublin in July. This is an unprecedented event for Irish libraries, and we will be delighted to hopefully showcase some of the services and the collections that we have here in the lexicon as part of that event. So as a librarian, I think as a former librarian, Alan, we're very excited about IFLA. Um, so special congratulations to Alan Hayes, an inspirational and incredibly hardworking publisher who has championed Irish women writers for decades. He relaunched Ireland House in 2000, which had been originally founded in 1975 by Catherine Rose. Former directors have included Margaret McCurtain and Yvonne Boland. Last year, Look, It's a Woman Writer, edited by Eilish Ndivna and published by Ireland House, tells the background history of Irish literary feminisms 1970 to 2020 and really is essential reading on Ireland House and the importance of continuing to value the voice of women writers. The book was also shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards. So the, our format for the evening is that Alan will give an overview of Ireland House and of the five books and then we will have a short intro piece on each of our five um, each of our five contemporary women writers. And then we will also have an opportunity for people who haven't yet purchased the books. And I notice sales have been brisk, so thank you to everyone for their support of uh, Irish publishing as well. They will also be available to, for purchase there. Every title is 15 euros. So that's a very easy one. So I'm going to call on Alan, please, to say thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, 
while I've been in this building many, many times for events that the legendary Marion Keys has curated, this is actually my first launch here, which is quite surreal because I've spent my life in libraries uh, as a child nerd and as an adult nerd. Um, but I grew up in North Dublin, so coming across the, the Liffey to this, when, in the 80s, we would have seen this as the, cult, the countryside full of cultures, you know? Um, but I grew up in Baldoyle Library, Rohini Library, and then in the mid-80s when Donnemead Library finally opened. And then I ended up working in a library. And out of that, I ended up relaunching Ireland House. Um, so libraries are such an important heart of the community. And it's wonderful that, over the years, the libraries have been so supportive, and as the Marion here and Catherine here have done so much. Um, I was very honoured in Galway. I worked for many years with Josephine Fahey. I think Catherine has worked with Joe. Um, and then in Dublin, I worked with another legendary librarian, Jane Alger, when we set up Dublin UNESCO City of Literature, and then in more recent years with Alison Lyons. So as I say, libraries are just magical places, and we need to support them. I also lived in England, and yesterday when Marion visited, we were talking about the demise of libraries in England and how many of them became volunteer sites with no staff. So we really need to make sure libraries thrive. Um, and as a publisher, libraries are crucial for the survival of Irish literature. Um, so um, Catherine mentioned two really important people. Because um, this is the, the this is a relaunch of the Ireland Ireland House Classic Literature series, which was founded in 1980. So Ireland House was reprinting books by women decades before everyone else, um, and the two people behind that were Ivan Boland, whose idea it was, and Margaret McCurtain, who um, anyone who know who knew Margaret knew how dynamic she was, and if she got an idea, she went for it. So Margaret McCurtain is a legend who lived just up the road in Dunleary. And Ivan Boland, as I say, is just... Ivan Boland changed the canon of Irish literature. You know, but not only in poetry. In 1979, when she came on the board of Ireland House, she edited the very first anthology of Irish women writers, which was actually fiction writers. So... When Ivan died last year, both Margaret and Ivan died in 2020, and they haven't received a tribute yet, so that's why I'm giving them a tribute now, because they deserve it. Um, and actually, Nessa O'Mahony is editing a future issue of Poetry Ireland Review, which will be a tribute to Ivan Boland, which is really important. Um, but Ivan, in 1979, edited the very first anthology of Irish women writers, which met with a media backlash, because it said, how dare you think that women deserve an anthology. Women have equal access to everything. Now, of course, you can laugh now but about that in 1979, but you could also argue that similar problems that existed in the 1970s still exist in the 2020s in publishing. Um, so those early movements, you know, in publishing changed the canon. And then in 1980, Ivan came up with the idea of a classic literature series and she started with Kate O'Brien. And Ivan had met Kate O'Brien once when she brought her to Dundrum to her house for dinner. Because Ivan, Ivan's husband, Kevin Casey, who just passed away last week, was editing an anthology. And he published two chapters of Kate O'Brien's unfinished novel, Constancy, in that anthology. 
So Kate went to the Boland House in Dundrum for dinner. And then five years later, Ivan came up with the idea of a, of a series to reprint books by um, Irish women writers who had gone out of print who didn't deserve to be out of print. So this one, The Ante Room, came out in 1980, and that led to an entire movement of Kate O'Brien scholarship and the Kate O'Brien Weekend that was founded in Limerick by Ireland House in 1984. Although sadly, it is not named after Kate O'Brien anymore. And it was, it was the only festival in Ireland named after a woman writer. And it is not anymore, which is just a terrible shame. Um, so as I say, these things need to be said. Um, so I just want to honour Catherine Rose, the legendary founder of Ireland House, Margaret McCurtain and Ivan Boland. Um, and then Catherine very kindly mentioned, look, it's a woman writer. Um, edited by Eilish Nugivna, who is here somewhere. There. <laughs> an, an incredibly important book. Uh, and many of the contributors to this book are here, and two of them are being launched tonight, Catherine Dunn and Leah Mills. Um, and I've been, since I relaunched Ireland House 23 years ago, I've done quite a few classics, but I just decided this was the time to do a proper full series and these are the first five. There are many more. There's Mary Rose Callahan has one coming. Um, and there's uh, novels by extraordinary people like Mary Manning, who died in the 1990s, but wrote this most extraordinary book in the 1930s called Mount Venus, which is a piss take on Maud Gone and all those cronies of Irish literature and politics. So it's set in a, in, a, in basically Roebuck House in, in um, uh, my brain has gone dead. Where's Roebuck House? Klansky, sorry. This is tiredness. Uh, I, was in, I was in Germany all last week and I hurt my back and I only came back on Monday night and I've been spaced ever since. Um, so that's Look, It's a Woman Writer, which I'm very grateful to Eilish, and we, it's been a, it was an enormous success. And then my latest book, Washing Windows 2, which came out last month, actually made history, and I tell the 100 women in it, again, some of whom are here, that they actually made history. Because this is an anthology of women poets who have not published a collection, and this book... So they don't have a media fan base behind them. They don't have PR campaign. They don't have funders behind them. This book went into the charts at number three, which was, you know, un unprecedented for poetry. And at the same time, uh, two other poets had their debut collections, Colm Tobin and Imelda May, who are both fine writers, and, but both have huge media following. Washing Windows 2 beat them in the charts. So... <laughs> So as I say, I do all these books without any Arts Council support, which has been going on for 15 years, and I'll talk about that another time. Uh, the art, one of the key things I learned from people like Margaret McCurtain, Ivan Boland, Catherine Rose, lecturers of mine like Katrina Clear, who lectured me in history 30 years ago in Galway, uh, that the truth is really important and free speech is really important. In the arts, that's not allowed. Or I should say with the Arts Council, that is not allowed. So I've spoken out about things and I've paid the price. 
But anybody who knows me knows I'm a stubborn bastard. <laughs> so if someone says to me, you can't do that, and for example, washing windows too, I was told that it was an unconvincing idea. So the hundreds and hundreds of people who bought it, the, the hundreds of women who contributed to it, um, the support it's received clearly demonstrates that it, the funders may have been unconvinced, but they're about the only ones, but they may be a little bit deluded as well, you know. Um, so as I say, anybody who knows me knows I'm stubborn, so if someone says you can't do that, I'm going to do it five times. And I'm doing it five times tonight. So... Um, I mentioned Katrina Clear and the series starts with a new edition of, of Kate O'Brien's Pray for the Wanderer, which has been out of print for 70 years. And when you read Katrina's brilliant introduction, you'll, uh, Katrina puts the book in its context, but that book was Kate O'Brien's response to her being banned in Ireland right after Mary Lavelle was banned. And Kate was banned a few times. But Kate's contribution to Irish literature is just so phenomenal. It's sad now, nearly 40 years since she died, that most of her books are out of print. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to rectify that. Pray for the Wanderer is a great start, and thank you, Katrina. Uh, Katrina is also going to speak briefly about Annie Smithson, who was the biggest selling writer in Ireland in the 20s and 30s and 40s read by, you know, sold in enormous quantities and read by a huge amount of people. But because she was so popular, she was dismissed as basically the, the, that version of Chicklet. When you actually read her books, you realise, no, the, this is far from Chicklet. Um, but but the, the, the ben she had a benefit in that sense because the censor ignored her. And when you actually read her stuff, you realise how many dark things she exposes in her, in, in her, in her novels. And I'm glad that Marie uh, bashford Sinnott is here and I commissioned her to do a biography of Annie M.P. Smithson, who I'm now calling Annie Smithson, because the MP is an affectation. Um, so that'll hopefully come out later on this year. Um, and then um, Leah Mills, Another Alice was published 25 years ago, and that was when I first met Leah. I was actually introduced to, uh, to Leah by Alva Smith. And that book was a phenomenal success, a really important, powerful book, and sadly went out of print, as that is often the case, particularly with women writers, women literary writers. Their books don't have the um, publisher support that male writers and maybe it's gender, maybe it's some politics, maybe it's funding. This not maybe not an easy answer, but it's back. So I'm very proud to publish another Alice. Um, Catherine Dunn, a name for himself, another really important book um, about coercive control. And um, again, has been out of print for a long time which is actually extraordinary when you consider Catherine is a huge international name and Catherine has sold over a million books. M far more, I think, isn't it? I don't count. Well, well <laughs> count. That, always count because the statistics don't lie. Um, so I'm really proud to publish a name for himself. And the final book is with our legendary librarian, Marion Keyes. And... Um, it's, again, an incredibly important book. Anna Maria Hall, 
who I've known of for decades as Mrs. S.C. Hall, and Marion reclaims her for who she was, a, a writer, an editor, um, a very dynamic literary person for many decades, uh, living in London but from Ireland. Um, so again, this is the start of the classic literature series. There are many, there's about another 12 books in progress at the moment. That's also why I'm very tired. Um, but I'm very proud of them. And alongside all the new books that are in progress, um, I had mentioned Look, It's a Woman Writer, and I'm very proud to say that I'm publishing some more women that were in Look, It's a Woman Writer. So I'll have a new collection with Celia Dufresne in June. And I have Anne Devlin's first book in 25 years that's coming out in June, which is really exciting. And there's more on the way. So, so I'm going to hand over to Marion. Oh no, it's Catherine. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alan. And I think it's an extraordinary dedication and achievement, all that has been done to promote and support these writers who didn't deserve to be forgotten and it's wonderful now to see them being remembered and celebrated and read, which is even more important that somebody reads your work too. So thank you very much. What we're going to do now is each um, of the contributors is going to speak and say something. So I'm going to start by doing a little kind of brief kind of bio on each person and then calling them forward to speak. So I'm going to start with Marion. Therese Keys, who um, needs really no introduction here in the lexicon. Marion has uh, recently retired as librarian here at DLR Lexicon, but it was actually, it was just lovely this afternoon. I was sitting on a never-ending Teams call about something not terribly exciting, and I looked up through the window, and there was Marion in her green raincoat, pushing a trolley with boxes of books. And I said, oh, Marion's back, and it's not a mirage. So that was just lovely. So Marion has been interested in Anna Marie Fielding Hall since the mid-1990s when she worked in the V&A. And she's also very interested, as we know, in the whole area of illustrated book production in the 19th century. Marion has completed a PhD on Anna Maria in 2010. I don't think anyone needs to know that Marion is a passionate advocate for children's books. She plays a critical role in committees and she was delighted this year and we were very, very proud that our librarian received the Children's Books Ireland Award for Outstanding Contribution to Children's Books in 2020. I think that deserves a round of applause. Um, so, so Marion has been passionate not just about current books, but about children's books in 20th century and present day. And she's going to speak to us now about Anna Marie Hall. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. It's uh, such a pleasure to be back in my favourite library uh, with family and friends for this really enjoyable event. So I'm just delighted that we're able to host it here in the Lexicon. And thankfully the sun is shining, the snow has stopped, and it looks lovely behind. You can see the Pigeon House from here. So it's always a, one of my favourite views. I've had a lot of authors in this, in this sort of area here from Mountains to Sea and Library Voices. So it's great to be here. And to be in the company of Katrina and Catherine and Leah, um, all 
of whom I've had the joy of working with over the years for festivals, special events, plays and, and author events. A huge thanks to Alan um, from Ireland House because he suggested the reader in the first place, which I think is a great idea, to get a snapshot of her various writings for plays, short stories, sketches, um, and then to I, I, I have an introduction to each of them. So there's 10 chapters. And it's just he's been so supportive and so enthusiastic throughout the process. And I was thrilled, thrilled to see the book yesterday when I went out to Baldoyle, crossed over to the north side to <laughs> uh, get a few boxes. Uh, there was always the, we weren't quite sure if they're going to arrive in time, but thankfully they all did. So it's just such a, a beautiful book. I thought I had it in my hand there. But anyway, it's, it's illustrated as well. And it, 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 I'm just really thrilled with it. Um, I completed the PhD, as, as Catherine said, in 2010. And a huge thanks to Mary Shine Thompson. The book is dedicated to her. She was my supervisor and mentor, and she was here for a short while earlier today, so it was great to be able to hand it over to her. A little bit, uh, 2010, it took me a little while to get around to, to doing it, but it's there, and I'm absolutely thrilled with it. Um, so whenever I mention Anna Maria Hall, uh, people, if they've heard of her at all, they might be familiar with her, the three-volume pre-famine um, book, Ireland, Its Scenery, Character, etc., which was published between 1841 and 43, in collaboration with her husband, Samuel Carter Hall. They travelled all around the counties of Ireland, heavily illustrated, beautiful, many times reprinted. But there's so much more to her output. And in the 1830s and 40s, she was just an incredibly best-selling, huge, hugely um, successful, in the same breath as Mariah Edgeworth, Lady Morgan. She was up there. Her sales were phenomenal. Um, she wrote fairy tales, novels, ghost stories, over 40 children's books. And for example, one of her children's books, Uncle Sam's Money Box, was so popular that it kept being reprinted and over 44,500 copies over a period of 30 years. So... Um, I also came across a letter from Charles Dickens applauding another of her children's books, The Swan's Egg, and he said that his daughters were devouring it with great delight. So she fought really hard to present children with books that were really top of the range, beautifully illustrated, lovely engravings. It was always a question of not shortchanging them, but giving them best and really getting them to, 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 to love books. And she was obviously a didactic writer in her time, but that was the accepted norm at that period. And one area that was particularly interesting to me was the area of her, her illustrated books. Um, she didn't illustrate her, them herself, but she knew many, many artists thanks to her husband who moved in circles and he was the editor of the, the, the art journal, the Art Union, which was the most popular art magazine in England at the time. But today we're used to maybe one, one illustrator working with one author um, and the illustrator usually works to the words generally, but that's, but back then it was completely the other case. So you'd have an engraving or an illustration and the writer would write around that and incorporate it in their work. So it was really quite um, fascinating to watch how this, the, the, this um, operated in, in her books. So this was before the golden age of illustration where you have, a, say, a John Tenniel doing the Alice illustrations for Lewis Carroll's Alice Adventures in Wonderland. In one of Anna Maria Hall's books, it's a fairy tale, Midsummer Eve, and we have 29 illustrators and engravers contributing to the one volume. Some specialise in landscape, some with animal portraits, others were fairy painters. So it makes for a very heady mixture of incredible different styles in the one book. So very different to a few decades later. 
So she was an influential editor as well. She championed the work of many contemporary women writers who were trying to get a foothold on the publishing ladder at the time. And she was tireless in her support of philanthropic activities in the area of health, temperance was a big one, and also the rights of governesses. Uh, <clears throat> Back then, um, the, the, the interesting thing about the governess was that it was very easy to fall in the hard times. So many people from the middle classes, they were, as I said, one step away from disaster and the, the, the only available options would be to be a governess. So it was a tricky time and she really championed them. So before I finish up, it's worth mentioning that, uh, Anna Maria's um, husband, Samuel Carter Hall, who helped and possibly hindered her career in a number of ways that I discuss in the book. And um, I was interesting, I was listening to Jessica Trainer talking to Nuala O'Connor this morning about Nora and their letters and their correspondence. But Samuel Carter, destroyed all of Anna Maria's letters to him, but kept all of his to her. <laughs> so, but um, she always stood by him, and as would have been expected in mid-Victorian times, but I do have some sympathy for him. Both of them worked incredibly hard. Their work ethic was amazing. Um, apparently, at one stage, he was commissioned to write a history of France in less than three weeks for Colburn's juvenile library. Sadly, despite reading over 100 books on the topic, not sleeping for 12 nights, he developed brain fever from nervous exhaustion. <laughs> Sadly, he never re received a copy of the book and the reviews were wretched. <laughs> so it's a salutary lesson for all who may be tempted to overextend. <laughs> But I, th I think what I admired about both of them is they really, they just were the, the, the sort of quintessential Victorian, intrepid travellers, writers. They always seem to have so many projects on the go. So I'm thrilled to share some of my discoveries with you, and I hope you enjoy a life of no light toil. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Marion. A writer's life is never an easy one, but that is a salutary tale. Our next focus is on another Alice by Leah Mills. And Leah Mills writes novels, short stories, literary essays and memoir. Her novel, Fallen, was the Dublin Belfast Two Cities selection in 2016. And in 2016, we hosted a number of events here in the Lexicon in April of that year including a visit to Belfast with members of the book clubs from the Lexicon. And the following month, book club members from Belfast visited the Lexicon and enjoyed a special day of events, including a talk and discussion with Leah. Apart from her many other works, she has an essay in the anthology of new writing from Dunleary Rathdown entitled Taking the Plunge, which was produced by Dunleary Rathdown Libraries and the Arts Office and edited by Vanessa Fox O'Loughlin to celebrate the opening of DLR Lexicon in 2014. And this novel was first published in 1996. So I think we'd like to call Leah Ford, please. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. It kind of feels like, it does feel like a rebirth, actually, as Catherine said. Um, just a couple of things. It is wonderful to be following Marion when she's bringing out a book of her own, because during her career as librarian here in Dunleary, she did so much to support the work of writers, and especially local writers, and I think she deserves a round of applause for that. 
We'll miss you, Marion. Um, and also, just to mention, since Alan referred to Ivan Boland and um, possibly a lack of recognition that Ivan is due to receive the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature later this year in June at an event. Um, she'll be presented with the award by Mary Robinson. Um, and that has been delayed. It was due to happen in 2020. And first COVID intervened. And then there was Ivan's untimely death. Um, but she will be getting her recognition. And I think Nessa has plans of her own as well, which you can find out about afterwards. So I just want to thank a few people. First of all, I want to thank, first of all, Alan Hayes um, and Arlen House for bringing out this brilliant series. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about being a classic. I think I like it. I think I like it. I could get used to it. Um, and uh, I want to thank Dunleary Libraries and Catherine Gallagher for hosting us this evening. To all the other contributors of the series, it's an honour to be among you. Um, I want to thank Carmel Benson for her fabulous images, images which I've loved for a long time, and she gave me this one for the cover and one for the back cover. Um, Paula McGrath for her generous foreword. Anya Niglin, Neil Hegarty, Liz McManus, and Martina Devlin for their time, their support, and their comments on the novel. And finally, to Robert Doran for early editing when the text was transferred from its previous format Back in the last century, let's remember, software was a very different thing. So a launch is a little bit like a birth. So um, I'm actually going to read. I'm going to read this passage, which is fairly self-explanatory. Um, it'll be the first time I've read from this book. I first met this book this evening. I first time I've had it in my hot little hands. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I'm very happy to have it. And happy to celebrate with all of you. So... Um, in this passage, Alice, in labour, gives birth to Holly. <coughs> when she first heard Holly cry, she was shocked. A baby. She'd forgotten somehow that this was what it was all about. She stared at the hospital blanket they'd wrapped her in, the black fuzz on the top of her daughter's head, and panicked when the nurse brought the baby to her. I don't know how to hold her, Alice said, and felt instantly ashamed. Stupid. But the nurse just laughed. You'll soon learn, she said, and arranged the blanket along Alice's arm. Holly's name slid quietly into her mind. Holly. Alice liked it at once, a sturdy name that meant nothing but itself, a name that would thrive in winter. Names were important. No one knew better than she did. Her own was deceptive. It seemed innocent enough, but Alice knew what it really meant. It meant someone stuck in a nightmare, trapped in a world of shapeshifters, a world full of menace. It meant someone, and then the polite fiction that the madness had been a dream, the lie that demanded that she wash her hands and go demurely in for tea. Hello, Holly, Alice said, trying out the sound of it. But at the same time, she was thinking, this wasn't what I meant. Somehow, despite the deep sense of connection she'd felt with Holly from the very beginning, despite the books on pregnancy, the childbirth classes, the advice from her friends, she'd managed to avoid knowing that the end of it all would be this, a real baby. They stared at each other. The books all said that infants couldn't see properly at birth, 
But Alice felt the power of Holly's ancient look and knew the books were wrong. She seemed strange and familiar all at once. Alice had talked to her often over the last few months, felt her stir and grow inside her, felt Holly's spirit touching her own, light, something feathered. But the being she had recognised and welcomed had little to do with this wrinkled, slippery baby now blinking and sucking her fist wetly against Alice's breast. Try feeding her, the nurse in the ward suggested. Holly's face creased up when she sucked, which she did fiercely, as if ravenous or angry for a few minutes. Then abruptly she fell asleep. Alice laughed out loud. She couldn't help it. She's so funny, she said, looking up. But the nurse had left the cubicle. Alice looked back down at Holly. You're so funny, she whispered. And something inside her dislodged, loosened, began to flow. Her body was still cramping, but she felt euphoric, powerful. It was as if a sudden rush of speed flooded her system. She knew in that instant there was nothing in the whole world she couldn't do. She leaned back against the pillows and felt the extraordinary new lightness of her body, the weight of her baby against her arm, and her spirit lifted. She felt shattered and exhilarated all at once. She still tingled with residual electricity. If blue lightning had streamed from her fingertips right then, she wouldn't have been at all surprised. The nurses took Holly away so that Alice could rest, and she slept for a while. She woke suddenly in the unfamiliar ward, startled by the smell of antiseptic. She was aware that she was sore now, battered. She remembered Holly and stretched, but carefully. I'm a mother, she thought, astonished. She felt as if her body had been given back to her. She touched the skin of her belly, folding in on itself now that it was no longer taut and distended. It had become soft and spongy, alien. She looked around her at the two rows of beds, a woman resting in each of them, some sitting, some sleeping. One, holding a baby, smiled encouragingly. What did you have, love? she asked, as Alice pulled herself up to sit, wincing. A girl, Alice answered, filled with a wild current of joy and relief. A girl. She looked down at her swollen breasts, tingling now as she remembered the tight, fierce pull of Holly's mouth. God, she thought, it works. This body really works. It's amazing. For the first time ever, she felt something like tenderness and respect for her body. It had survived her own best efforts to destroy it, survived and become miraculous. She looked back over the months of growth, all the time that the intricate, complex structure that had now become Holly was evolving, the extraordinary process of birth. She was stunned. I did that, she thought. I lived through it. And now there's Holly. She was filled with wonder. She thought of all the women walking around the city, outwardly calm and ordinary, each concealing this explosive secret potential. She thought of all the women she knew who were mothers who'd gone through this and never let on. Women she liked and those she didn't like, teachers she had had in school, the neighbours of her childhood, her own, all of them, capable of this. It was like a universal secret that had been kept from her. A slow rage began to burn in her. She felt cheated. She wished that she had known. She didn't know what difference it would have made to her, but it would have changed something. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was just fantastic. Thank you.
Our next two titles um, are going to be introduced and spoken about by Katrina Clare. Katrina lectures on European and Irish women's history, the history of poverty and institutions, political history and oral history at the National University of Ireland in Galway. I suppose her connection with DLR Libraries, given that it is April and we're celebrating one Dublin, one book, we were delighted to have Katrina as a visiting speaker on several previous occasions for Strumpet City in 2013 and Edna O'Brien's Country Girls trilogy in 2019. Her own work includes Women's Voices in Ireland, Women's Magazines in the 1950s and 1960s, Social Change and Everyday Life in Ireland, and her pioneering work on nuns in 19th century Ireland. She's currently working on a history of shop assistants and secretaries in the 20th century, while also indulging an enthusiasm for reading popular novelists and journalists in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. Today she's going to speak about two of the titles, Pray for the Wanderer by Kate O'Brien, which as Alan mentioned was first published in 1938, and also Carmen Kavanagh by Annie Smithson, which was first published in 1921. And I have to say, Annie Smithson was one of those people who was on the shelf, I think, of every elderly aunt that I ever remember visiting as a kid. And they were always there and was like, oh, read Annie Smithson. And unfortunately, I didn't at the time. And now I realise I should have, and I can. So I will. So thank you very much, Katrina. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine, and thanks, Alan and Marion, for the invitation. It's really great to be here. It's such an honour to be associated with such beautiful books, so beautifully produced and everything. Anyway, I, Alan told me to be brief, so I'll be brief. Um, <laughs> just start with Kate O'Brien's Pray for the Wanderer. And Alan mentioned that Kate O'Brien was banned, that a number of her novels were banned. And you know, when we often think, I think when we think of banned Irish writers in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, we often imagine them to be sort of defiantly relishing their notoriety, kind of reveling in it even. But Kate O'Brien's Pray for the Wanderer shows us that the pain, shows us the pain and hurt that a banned writer could feel, cut off from the natural audience of his or her compatriots. Pray for the Wanderer, was first published in 1938, and it was not banned. But it was Kate O'Brien's previous book, Mary Lavelle, that had been banned. And in Pray for the Wanderer, O'Brien, Kate O'Brien's alter ego, I suppose, Matt Costello, is an author who has come home from, his plays have been banned, and he has come home for a visit to his beloved Melick, Limerick, of course, um, back from London, and he finds himself genuinely torn between his love for his native soil and his, his compatriots, and his pride in the state that he has helped to bring into being, because he has fought for Irish independence. He's torn between this and his desire for artistic freedom. And he's also really pained by the turn that Catholicism has taken in Ireland, because even though he doesn't fully accept the authority of the Catholic Church, he loves the culture of Catholicism and he's very attached to it, like O'Brien herself. And I think that her title here, Pray for the Wanderer, it's taken from the popular hymn, Hail Queen of Heaven, the Ocean Star, a beautiful hymn. And this is Kate O'Brien's way of saying, this belongs to me too, even though I'm a band writer. Um, 
but if it was only about the experience of being banned, it would, be, it would be a very boring book, and it isn't. It's a very interesting book. It's about the relationship between two Melik families, the, the, the Costellos and the Mahanese, drawn with Kate O'Brien's usual subtlety and brilliance. And in Nell Mahoney in particular, Kate O'Brien has created one of her, I think, one of her most intriguing characters, the contentedly single woman who is devoted to her job and to her causes. And there were many, many women like this in Ireland uh, in the first four or five decades of independence. I'm sure we knew some of them, women who were utterly dedicated, utterly sincere and utterly honest in what they did. Now, there's the same kind of familiarity about Annie M.P. Smithson, she's another single career woman, um, and this, her book Carmen Cavanagh being launched here today. Um, she wrote 19 best-selling novels between 1917 and 1947, and an autobiography. She was an active trade unionist, uh, an editor of the Irish Nurses Gazette, and she was also a district nurse. She had trained in England and Scotland in the 1890s, and she came back to Ireland, and she worked as a jubilee nurse in down in Down, um, Donegal, Clare, um, and in Dublin. She loved Dublin best of all. Dublin was her native soil. And she wrote articles about her time nursing, being a district nurse in, in the tenements in Dublin. And she, she loved the people of the tenements, although she was quite judgmental about their dietary habits and things, as a nurse would have been. Um, Carmen Kavanagh is based upon her experiences in Donegal as a district nurse. And it was first published by Talbot Press in 1921. And the events, I suppose the events or the experience of having been in Donegal was still fresh in her mind. So it can be considered in some ways as, as a historical record of conditions in Donegal as she experienced them around 1912 or 1913. As Ellen commented earlier, Annie M.P. Smithson was never banned, although she did have some very dark themes, and the themes of infanticide and unmarried motherhood, a dark enough theme in the 1920s and 30s, comes up, come up in this book. And I think it's significant that the book was published in the revolutionary period in 1921, where Smithson might have had a freedom that she mightn't have had maybe two decades later when, when there, Censorship, I think, had become more strict and stringent. Anyway, it's vigorously and colourfully written, like all Smithson's novels, and many of which I read avidly as a teenager, and I'm dying to read this one again. So I'll just finish there. I would heartily commend both of these books to your attention. Thank you. Last but not least, we have our final novel from this evening. And this is um, Catherine Dunn's own novel, A Name for Himself. And Catherine, as we learnt, has sold over a million books um, and is also the author of 11 published novels and one work of non-fiction, An Unconsidered People, which was published first in 20, 2003, but updated in 2021 and explores the lives of Irish immigrants in 1950s London and is a really, really interesting read. Her novels include The Things We Know Now, which was the recipient of the Giovanni Boccaccio International Prize for Fiction in 2013. She was shortlisted for Novel of the Year at the Irish Book Awards and the years that followed, which was long listed for the International Dublin Literary Award in 2018. 
Catherine also received the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature in 2018. A Name for Himself was first published in 1998 and it is very interesting to have an author who had a book which had gone out of print and is now back in print. So we're very much looking forward to hearing about the title. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much, all of you, for coming here this evening and for being with us in this lovely space in the lexicon and how good it is to be able to enjoy in-person events again. It's amazing we had to make up a special name for what we used to take for granted. And of course, particular thanks to Arlen House and to Marion Therese Keyes for making today happen. Um, being in a library, I think, is just sort of a second home to all writers. And um, Alan mentioned, look, it's a woman writer, the publication from last year. And it was amazing how many of the writers who contributed to that volume mentioned how significant libraries had been in all of our developments, both as readers and writers. So thank you for continuing to keep this wonderful service going. And today's launch is really a very special occasion. Um, Arlen House, through publisher Alan Hayes, once again demonstrates his commitment to supporting the work of women writers over the years. Work, as we've seen, that has often been overlooked or undervalued. And Alan has made tackling that imbalance into his own personal mission since he reinvigorated the publishing house, Arlen House, that we know today. And it seems to me that all of the books in one way or another that are being reissued and celebrated today deal with silence in one form or another. Kate O'Brien's Pray for the Wanderer, as we've just heard, is regarded as her novelistic response, among other things, to censorship and how it functioned in this state in the 1930s and beyond. Censorship of writers continued well into the 1950s, as we know. The year of my own birth, 1954, has the dubious honour of being the year in which most books were banned, 300 of them. And of course, censorship today hasn't gone away either. It's all around us under the new cloaks of fake news, misinformation and disinformation. Annie Smithson's Carmen Kavanagh, as we've just heard, also deals with a disappeared Ireland, an Ireland full of secrets. From rural Donegal to cosmopolitan Dublin in the early years of the last century. And A Life of No Light Toil by Marion Therese Keyes sheds light on the life of Anna Maria Fielding Hall, a woman whose writings and philanthropy particularly in the area of improving the working conditions of women in the 19th century, is not as well known as it might be. So it seems to me that one way or another, all of the novels today address the silences, the evasions and the concealments of Irish society. It's very sobering to realise that the two other novels being reissued today are almost a quarter of a century old, and I certainly identify with Leah's um, statement about wondering what it means to be a classic. I well remember when Another Alice, written by my friend and colleague Leah Mills, was published in 1996. Its impact was significant, 
a novel that broke the silence around child abuse and brought it fearlessly into the light. A name for himself followed two years later, and I think that both of these novels emerged out of an Ireland that was just beginning to dismantle the walls of denial that surrounded so many deeply uncomfortable issues. Coercive control was not a phrase that I was familiar with when I began writing this novel in the mid-1990s. I, could I couldn't name it, but I knew what it was. I recognised it. And the creation of Vinnie Farrell and Grace Brown, the main characters in this novel, was my attempt to understand what allowed and enabled such toxic relationships to grow. Today, violence against women is part of an urgent national conversation. And in my afterword to this new edition, I explore the topic in Ireland today. And finally, I'd like to offer my grateful thanks to Mia Gallagher, who wrote the extremely generous foreword to this new edition. So, I'll just read you a very short extract. And Vinnie Farrell is the man at the centre of the story. And this marks the day he meets Grace Brown. Farrell knocked at the door marked reception. No answer. He was just about to turn away when the door was opened abruptly. Yes? Farrell felt a sudden lump in his throat as he looked at the woman standing in front of him. He was much taller and she had to look up at him. He had a blinding impression of deep blue eyes, pale skin, mouth a perfect crimson arc. He couldn't speak. Someone pushed past her from behind, racing for the front door. A man in a dark suit, Farrell noticed. Night Gracie floated back as whoever it was slammed the heavy door behind him. Night David, she was smiling at Farrell now, eyes all gentle amusement. Farrell was immediately angry at the familiarity between them, jealous of the departing back. I'm sorry, he managed. I was just looking for some black sacks. I'm cleaning up downstairs. Christ, he was making himself sound like a common labourer. And the man who had just run out was wearing a suit. Farrell was suddenly painfully conscious of his dark blue overalls and his Dublin accent. No matter how careful he tried to be, broad, unguarded vowels still slipped to the surface of his speech in moments of stress. I don't think there are any. I'll get PJ to bring some tomorrow. She was looking at him kindly. He wanted to be gone. But more than that, he wanted to look at her. He was greedy for those eyes, that mouth. Right, he mumbled, turning away and hitting his knee painfully off the corner of his toolbox. Let me out of here. Good night, she called. There was laughter in her voice. Farrell couldn't reply. He pulled angrily at the door and stepped out into the September sunshine of Merrion Square. He could do with a pint after all. He could do with forgetting what he had just seen. Christie's familiar conversation would drown the swirling of his gut. 
but he knew. He felt panicked, elated. He knew he had just met the only woman he would ever want. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's just wonderful, I think, to hear um, people read writing aloud and read aloud and hear that, hear that lovely noise again in this space. It's just really, really fantastic. So thank you all very, very much. It's just been a lovely, lovely evening. Thank you to all of our contributors. Thank you particularly to Alan. We look forward to yet more publications coming from Ireland House and they will all find a home on the Irish Author Collection on Level 5 at DLR Lexicon, which will continue to be a resource going forward. Now, just in a slight addition to the programme, we have one final little event, so I'm going to ask Sarah to come forward, please. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, as Catherine mentioned, um, Maureen Keyes retired from the library very recently, and some of her friends in the children's book world and the wider book world, poets, programmers, all kinds of people, um, got together and put a book together for her, which is called Marion Key's Lady of Lexicon. <laughs> um, <laughs> because we thought she deserved her own book. She has done so much for writers, illustrators, poets, everyone in the book world. And we just wanted to say thank you to her. So to mark this, Nessa, Nessa has very kindly agreed to read the poem that she wrote for Marion for the book, which is called Lady of Lexicon. And thanks, Sarah, for allowing me to elbow my way into this beautiful book. Um, I think many of us have been incredibly grateful over the years to all the work that Marion has done for us writers, especially this time of year when it was Mountains to Sea, Poetry Now, all of those wonderful events. Lady of Lexicon for Marion Keyes. It grew brick by brick, book by book, Glass panes reflecting back the harbour blue, the distant green of Hoth. The faces who stared out as they dreamed of the stories they picked up from the shelves you stopped. And there, it seemed everywhere at once, you were. The smiling host, but more the energy, the current that made things happen, that brought light in and laughter, and thought, and remembrance. And with all that done, you stood back, happiest out of you, watching it happen. Listen, that's thousands of voices saying thank you. I can't really speak. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. I can't really speak. I just really appreciate this. I haven't even had a proper look, but it's just wonderful. It's been a pleasure working with you all. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>